All right, a couple quick housekeeping first. That was written by our own uh, Joy Vetterlein, and it's, uh, I thought that was really cool. It's always exciting to see our artists uh, do art, and so I want to encourage all you artists, uh, as we'll see in these, uh, these next couple chapters of the story, God calls you to use your art uh, for his glory. Um, second, maybe more importantly, um, there's a Dodger playoff game going on right now. And we're going to talk about sin and confession. If any of you tell me anything about the game, which I don't want to know anything about, there will be consequences, okay? <laughs> so I will assume your movements in the, in the uh, audience will be in response to the greatness of the sermon today and not the score, okay? So don't tell me. All right, so we are in week 12 of the story. And what we're doing is we're going through a, a series called The Story, which is we're looking at 31 of the stories of the Bible, using them as a, a kind of a roadmap to, to see the big story, God's big story. We're using this resource called The Story. It, it, and uh, this is not the Bible, but it's a, a bridge version, a chronological version of the Bible. So we're kind of following the narrative of God's story. And, and so what we're, every week what we're hoping happens is uh, we want to look at one of these key stories. We want to see how it's tied together to the big God story, and we'll see some incredible things uh, today. Uh, but I always want you asking the question, how does my story fit into God's story? And you cannot help but see that today uh, as we talk about it. So uh, today, uh, let me get us started with this question. Have you ever done something, something dumb, and you kept making it worse. Uh, don't nudge the person next to you and remind them of that time. Uh, I, I, I think I was eight years old. And my friend and I were playing with matches, right? So we were lighting matches, watching them burn, see how close we can get, and throwing them then into a trash can, not really realizing how dangerous it was. When my, my friend's dad, who was a fireman, came home, he asked, have you been playing with matches? So matches, bad. Lying, no, bad. He quickly found the source of our destruction, bad. Bill, go home, tell your dad what you've been doing. Okay, went home, didn't tell my dad, bad. He comes walking down the street. I see him coming. I'm thinking, please turn, please turn, please turn. Keeps coming. Bill, did you tell your, your dad about what you did? Yeah. He walks in the house. He talks to my dad. I hear, Billy, get in here. Bad. And it's just going snowballing from bad to worse. Uh, many of you guys realize, there, I mean, there's all kinds of situations like this. We can laugh about it today, but you realize, hey, kids playing with matches. You can burn a house down. I could have killed my friend. I could have found I love burning things. There's a lot of things that could have happened in that time. Um, but thankfully, uh, uh, you get the idea. But, but I think what one, of us, what one of the things that we start to realize is a lot of times the big trouble we get in is a result of these bad decisions that we don't intercept and we just kind of keep going and it snowballs and it keeps getting bigger and more destructive. And we're going to see this today that even a man after God's own heart struggles with things like this. Uh, but I hope that you will also see how amazing God is that even in and I I can't imagine any of us have ever fallen quite like we're going to see David fall today but 
But you're going to see the grace of God and how huge it is. And God's desire to meet us in brokenness and sin and restore us. And how God can take the most broken uh, things in our life and bring about his good. And so I want you to see that today as we look at it. So here's our big idea today. And you're going to see it's kind of two sides of, one, uh, two sides of a coin. That sin brings destruction, but God can make us whole. And today's chapter in the story, on the one hand, we have to see, it's very important that we see how sin brings destruction. And, and certainly as we keep making choice after choice after choice that kind of keeps taking us down a path, we have to see how important it is that we intercept that and stop that. Uh, but I, the, the other part that we need to see very clearly today in this chapter is the unique way in which God makes us whole. And so as we begin to look at this, uh, we're going to see, we, we left off last week in the story, what we've been seeing is how God has established a people, and through this people, they're going to be a blessing to the nations. Um, the people have asked for a king. He gave them a king. It was a king whose heart was halfway towards them. He's removed that king, and now he's raised up. Like we saw last week, he raised up King David. Now, what's so interesting is last week we saw that David had this moment of tremendous courage. He fights Goliath. And we see this unique way in which uh, maybe many of you have experienced. We've seen this many of the chapters of the story. God says, I want to do something in your life. And it takes a long time until he actually does it. And for David, as a teenager, anointing. And then there's this fight with Goliath, this great moment where we see the anointing kind of coming through. We see this trust in God. But then he has to run from the, the current king. He has to hide from him for years. And in all that time, God is preparing him. He's working in him. He's teaching him dependence. And so there's about 14, 15 years in which David is waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. But as the chapter came to a close, we saw that David is now the, he becomes the king. In fact, it's interesting that even in this time where he's waiting on the promise to be fulfilled, there's this moment where we get a kind of a glimpse of why God would pick someone like David. David is a man, there's this moment of great courage, but there's also this moment of great integrity. I don't know if you remember reading it last week, but in the, there's part of David's story was as Saul was hunting him, trying to cut him down so that David could not become the king. David had all this notoriety. The people loved him. They thought very highly of him. There's, David's out, he has to hide from the king and from his army. And he's hiding in a cave one time and Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself. And here's the moment. David thinks, here's the moment. I can be king right now. And instead, David thinks, who am I to take down God's anointed one? And David, while he has the chance to take the power and the control into his own hands, instead, he trusts God has a better plan. And he lets Saul go. He just cuts off a little corner of his garment and shows him, I could have taken you, but I didn't. And so we see this, like, that's what makes this chapter so fascinating to me. Because we see this great integrity in David. But as we come into this chapter, we're going to see that there is this, uh, David is going to fail, and he is going to fail big time. And, and as we begin to see this, I, I want you to see how important it is that somehow it seems that somewhere along the line, David let his guard down. And, and disappointing choice came after disappointing choice, and there was a shift in his life and in his family and in God's kingdom. So let me invite you to turn to chapter 12 in the story. Um, but if you want, if you're going to open a Bible, what I want to encourage you to turn to is Psalm 51. 
Now, we're not going to come there for a while, so just be patient. You're going to be like, when are we going to read it? I promise you we will read it, but I'd love for you to have Psalm 51 open because it will help you. At the end of our service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to remember what Jesus did for us. And Psalm 51 will be uh, what we'll use to prepare our hearts for that. Uh, But to follow along the story, uh, we're in chapter 12. And so the first thing we want to see in in this is that uh, the first point I want you to understand is that there is a snowball effect to sinful choices. There's a snowball effect to sinful choices. Uh, Many of us realize some of the tragic things of our lives should have been caught a long time ago. Uh, but we made a bad decision, a bad decision, a bad decision. And there's a snowball effect to our choices. And this seems to be what happens to David. So we're going to get to this point where we see this tragic failure in David. But we've got to go back a little bit of ways and go, what? How did you get to here? And if we go back a ways, we start to see some of the decisions that David's making that we realize, not a good choice. So one of the things that we see is this, is that uh, uh, David, what we know about David is that uh, this is about 20 years later. Uh, and this was super scary because I started looking at this thing and, wow, David's about my age when all this is happening. So I was like, pay attention to this text this week. This, there's a lot to learn. But David's been king for about 20 years. He has had a, a tremendous success. But one of the things that's happening in his success there's all kinds of crazy family dynamics that happen. One of the things is David begins to take on, accumulate more and more wealth and power, but he also begins to accumulate more and more wives. Now, I, I found it just challenging enough to have one wife, uh, let alone many wives. I, I don't know if you have ever heard, Mark Twain was once asked, uh, why do you think God doesn't want you to have more than one wife? And Mark Twain answered this way, Jesus himself said it, you can only have one master. So, there you go, you got it. I gotta work on my delivery or something. Now, this was a cultural practice. It's not something God condoned, but it was something that was practiced in the culture. But Deuteronomy 17.17 had forbid this to happen, and especially for a king. And so the thought was, God said, look, you're going to go into the land. He's preparing them to go into the land. He says, look, you're going to look around. You're going to see the other nations, how they do it. And you're going to want a king. Make sure that king does not take on many wives because they will lead his heart astray. And even though that's the clear instruction, that's not what David does. David first had Michael. She was the love of his life. And they were, there was, I mean, there was some passionate things that they did to establish this relationship together. David fought all these warriors to win her hand over. She protected him against her own dad. So, I mean, this was a dynamic relationship. But as you'll see, the story gets somewhat complicated. And uh, as, he's, as he's moving away and Saul gives his daughter to someone else. But David begins to take on these other wives. Uh, And sometimes we realize that in this thirst for power, when we have the capacity for power, for more, when we have the capacity to take on more, we we do it. And sometimes that is a very dangerous place to be. But second, we see this is that uh, this somehow in all this, there, there seems to be something that has disintegrated between he and Michael. There's this moment where David comes at the end of last chapter where he conquers Jerusalem and they win back the Ark of the Covenant. And and as they're parading in the Ark of the Covenant, everybody is celebrating. They're dancing in the streets. I mean, this is this is like I mean the, the, the biggest thing they could possibly celebrate. And there is David. And he's he's kind of 
out of his kingly robes. He's wearing this uh, uh, linen ephod. He's kind of dressed like the, the other Levites. And, and he's down there leading the procession. He's down there dancing himself crazy. And there's his wife watching him up in the window. And now you got to think about this. She's grown up in politics. She's the daughter of a king. She's lived in the palace her whole life. This is all she knows is politics. This is not how a king behaves. And so David comes home from this whole thing. And it says this, that when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. The door opens, honey, I'm home. You idiot. You embarrassed everyone today. You embarrassed our family. You embarrassed our nation. But notice David's response. David doesn't go, whoa, 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 whoa. What I hear you saying is, there isn't that kind of moment, is there? He says, David's response is, I was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I became even, and I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be, uh, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Boy, you think I embarrassed you now? I got more in the tank, lady. Right? And so there's this kind of weird interaction that takes place. And if you don't think it's weird, the next verse says this. And this is from the previous chapter. I just want to kind of set us up. But it says this, And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, why does the Bible include that verse? We don't, we don't actually know, but it does. And so we've, scholars have wondered, was there a curse put on her? Was there, did they lose intimacy? Which would certainly seem to from that interaction that something was off in their relationship from that point. And instead of reconciliation... She is never mentioned again. There's, there's not a, a word of Michael ever again in Scripture. These two who once were in this great, passionate love for one another, something happened. Something happened. And, and what you sense at this point as we're entering into this chapter is that the snowball has been rolling already. But no, notice verse, uh, the very first verse of chapter 12, 2 Samuel 11, 1 says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now the reason spring, better weather, better crops, your, your, your troops could find food. But this is a very scary verse, isn't it? Because what is supposed to happen, it seems right, okay, commander-in-chief, he sends out his army, This makes a lot of sense. But there's a reason why this verse is there. The point is, David, for 20 years in the spring, goes with them. But for some reason, this time he calls in sick. This time he's, whether it's lazy or what, we don't know what it is. But now he has idle time, downtime, lack of accountability time. And you're left wondering, what if... David had gone, as he had always gone off with his troops. Would we ever have the rest of this story of David and Bathsheba? And then you read this, verse 2. 
One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. That woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. So David's up, can't sleep. He goes out on the roof. He looks out. He notices the girl next door. Now, again, the snowball's rolling. Because what does it say that David does? What he should have done is gone, not supposed to be seeing this. Got to get out of here. But instead he goes, who's that? And the snowball's rolling. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in that situation and you know you shouldn't be there. You know you shouldn't be looking at this. You know you shouldn't be with this person. You know you shouldn't be having access to what you have access to. And for whatever reason, instead of walking away, running away, you indulge. You think you can fight. In this particular circumstance, I want to tell you the Bible's very clear of what you should do. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says this, flee from sexual immorality. It doesn't say fight. It says flee. Now, I was first taught this by a 10th grader. I was leading a high school small group, and it was summertime, and I said, look, I've, I've been discipling you guys. You guys lead a small, you guys lead one of the lessons. And one of these kids, Sean, he taught on this. And I, I remember thinking, this is really, really insightful. This is really good from this 10th grader. Now, it was really neat was a, a few months ago, I was sitting with this group of pastors, and they're an older group. They've been well-established, successful pastors. And we somehow got into talking about this, and I just started listening to what it was. And one of the guys said this. Here's, the, here's been the, tr- the, the secret for me to stay faithful to my wife, to stay faithful to my pastorate. He says, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says this. Flee from sexual immorality. He goes, every opportunity that I felt uncomfortable, I ran away from. I'm like, Sean taught me that. He's a little, that 10th grader taught me that. that. Like, it was so neat to see that bridge come together. Run, flee. But notice instead what happens. He says, he inquires, and watch what happens. The snowball's rolling, rolling. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, if you look closely, I I want you to know something's happening here. When he, he asks his advisor, who is this? And the advisor gives an answer. This is God warning him. This is the warning lights going off in triplicate. Beep, 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 beep. I mean, there's sirens, everything. And and now, if you're the advisor, you can't insult the king, but the advisor's very crafty. The advisor doesn't just say, that's Bathsheba. He says this. She is the daughter of one of your best fighters. She is the granddaughter of one of your most uh, trusted advisors. She is the wife of one of your most loyal advisors soldiers. The advisor's answer was to encode, to say to David, clearly she is off limits. Run away, friend. Run. Flee. Run, Forrest. Run. (laughs) But David's desire is too strong, and he sends for her, and he commits adultery with his trusted uh, soldier, his trusted advisor, 
uh, Uriah's wife. Bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And the snowball is just rolling. And instead of heeding the, the warnings and, and using wisdom, David gives in to passion. Uh, Dan and, and Chip Heath, are, they write some great books. They wrote a book called Switch. And they explain this, in a, I think, in a great way by an illustration. They say this, that uh, uh, there's two parts to us in decision-making. We have an emotional side, which is like the elephant. And we have a rational side, which is like the writer. Now, most of us look and think the writer is in control. But the truth is, we know our emotions, our passions at any moment could just take over. And so the, the trick is you're going to have to learn to have the two work together. Your, your rational side says, I should lose some weight. I should get healthier. I, I want to live longer. Your passionate side says, I like cookies. I like donuts. And usually the donuts win. And so they, there's this warning that there's this, there's this beast that, that is hard to control. And, and when you know this about uh, yourself, and when you understand, then you can start to have these two work together. And David's advisor speaking to his rational side, but David's letting his passions get the best of him. And, and one of the interesting things is this, that you see in this moment, is that David is, is experiencing something that all of us who are disciples of Jesus have the privilege of, is that God is always looking out for you and God is always trying to pull you away from temptation. Here's how, how the scriptures say it in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Okay, do you understand that? There's nothing that you face that God will not give you the strength or the escape route from. Because notice what it says. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Your little rational writer right now is going, okay, God is going to give me ways out. I just need to look for him and I need to figure out how to steer the giant elephant, the passions, because all your passion is going to want to say yes to those things. But God's promise to you is this. When you are tempted, I will provide a way out. And this sermon for some of you might be that warning, that way out. Maybe God's saying to you, look, you've gone too far. You've crossed the line on social media. You've, You've crossed the line at work. You've crossed the line with that friend. Listen to the warning. See, David ignored the warning. He let his pleasure overwhelm him. And and as a result of that, he found himself in a a very difficult situation. The word comes back, I'm pregnant. And David does what many of us would try to do. He tries to cover it up. He figures people can do the math. Her husband's away. She's pregnant. How does this happen? Somebody else is the father. Wait a second. Didn't we see her? Wait a second. And so David does this, tries to do this cover-up. He brings Uriah home. Go be with your wife. Congratulations, you've done great for me. I, wanna, I want you to celebrate. But Uriah has way too much integrity for, for this. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and, and the Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? 
as surely as you live, David, I will do no such thing. I won't dishonor you, David, by going and doing this. And he sleeps out on the porch and David's frustrated. Oh man, what am I going to do? So he gets him drunk. He's tanked. He's like, if he's, if he's wasted, then maybe he, he won't have enough strength to withhold his wife. And yet Uriah has more integrity drunk than David has sober. And again, he stays out. He doesn't go with his wife. So David has painted himself in a corner. He does the unthinkable. To cover it up, he writes a death sentence for Uriah. 2 Samuel chapter 11 says this, that in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Put him out in front, pull everyone back, make sure he dies. And Uriah has these instructions. He hands them to the commander this is dark. This has really gotten dark. Now think about what happens. Uriah dies. There's a time of mourning for Bathsheba. There's a season, however long the season goes, where she, she mourns the loss of her husband. But then David does something. David comes in. He takes her to be his wife. He adds him to his harem. And all the people think, look at our king. What a guy. I mean, that's Uriah the Hittite. Uriah wasn't even an Israelite. And he takes his wife into his care. David, what a guy. Wow. And everyone is impressed, except for one. God's not impressed. And we find ourselves thinking, what if, what if, what if, what if he would have reflected on Deuteronomy 17, 17? What if he wouldn't have reacted so harshly to Michael? What if he would have gone off to war? What if, what if, what if? My friend Scott Martin uh, is a pastor down the street. I love how he said it. He said it this way. It is the cumulative effect of the daily small decisions that write the stories of our lives. Isn't that true? The story of your life is being written, not just with the big event moments, but by the small daily things. The the flywheel. All the little decisions, all the little things coming together. Now this is a very heavy moment, and I'm sure for some of you, your heart, is, is feeling very heavy because of what this brings up in your own life. But I want you to see, and this is going to feel even more painful. There's the second thing you have to write down. Our sinful choices need to be exposed by God. And I want you maybe even to circle the word needs to be. You need, I need these things to be exposed for, by God. I need God to bring to light these things in my life that are going to cause destruction. These sinful choices, I need God to catch them. For my good, for the good of my family and the people around me, for the good of God's glory. And as difficult as this is, we see uh, that God cares about David. And so he sends his friend, the prophet Nathan, to him. And Nathan comes and says, David, I have a story I want you to hear. He tells him the story. There were two men. 
This man had, a, man had everything. He had livestock. He had all kinds of riches. He had it all. This family over here, this man, he has had one small lamb. Well, a friend came from a journey to visit the rich man. But you know what the rich man did? Instead of taking from all his vast wealth, he went over to his neighbor's house. He took his one and only lamb and he served that to feed his guest. And David, you can just see the red coming on his face and he's clenching his teeth and he's like, who is that man? Listen to what David says. He burned with anger, right? You can see it in his face, can't you? And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Nathan goes on to say, look, God wants you to know he gave you everything. And if you wanted more, he would have given you more. And there is, it is, this is a rather incredibly hard thing to take in. But David, unlike his predecessor Saul, does not make excuses. Remember Saul, every time Saul would make a mistake, he would say, well, you know, but, and he'd rationalize, he'd give excuses. There was always a reason why he felt he was justified in doing what he did. But David is different. David says to Nathan, and I want you to see this. This is so important for us. If we're going to be authentic followers of Jesus Christ, to have the same heart. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Now the healing can begin. Now the restoration can begin. And David sees himself in a place of honesty. He's honest before God. And these things have to be exposed. Uh, We had a kid in our high school group years ago when I was a youth pastor. And he got injured in a basketball game. It's a significant injury. In fact, um, it required surgery. But when they did the surgery, they discovered he had this large tumor growing. And as a result of this injury, his life was saved. And we came to see this incredible Miracle of God. At first, it seemed like this tragic thing. It was this, how did you let this happen, God? And then you saw God was doing something very beautiful, very restorative to this man. And this guy now is a, he's just a great husband and father. He's a world changer. He is an awesome guy. But it took that injury to save his life and to bring him to this place. And some of us need today For God, through his spirit, to expose our sin and our failure, and it will hurt. There's no question. To be honest before God about your failure hurts. It's embarrassing. But it's in these moments that God begins to restore and forgive and redeem. And all these things, we begin to see see this. See, for some of you, By doing this today, you will save your marriage or you will save your career or you will keep yourself out of prison. And as as difficult as it will hurt, God will begin a process of restoring you. David uh, would pray this in one of the Psalms. 
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is an incredibly bold prayer to pray. But how can we be the followers of Jesus and not pray, Lord, you have to show me. How am I deviating from you? How am I, how am I failing you? How, how is it that I'm letting this, this stuff into my life that's going to destroy me? It's going to destroy the people around me. Search me. That is a bold prayer, but it is the right prayer of the disciple of Jesus, the follower of him. And this is the last thing I want you to see as we close. That no matter how big your mistake was, God's forgiveness is greater. God's forgiveness is greater. David, in his humility, found forgiveness. And and David found, because of that moment, that God began this work of restoration. I want you to see just how fast it begins to happen. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verse 13. Notice Nathan's response. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan's next response is, the Lord has taken away your sin. Honest confession before the Lord, and he wipes it clean. David, again, in the Psalms, writes this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him, who trust him. Who worship him. As far as the east is from the west. And you do understand that that's an infinite line. That's not north to south a pole that you can measure. That far as the east is from the west infinitely. He has removed our transgression from us. That is who our God is. And, if, and God does this amazing thing. There are certainly consequences, and you'll read about it in the chapter, about all kinds of consequences. You know this. I don't have to tell you that. But God does the most amazing thing. You talk about restoring. God would later work through David and Bathsheba, and they would have another son. And that son is named Solomon. And Solomon, as we'll see next week, is the next king. And through this line of David and Bathsheba, And Solomon comes our Lord. Part of the genealogy of Jesus is Bathsheba and David. And through that wife and through that line, God brings about the Savior of the world, the King of Kings. And you're thinking, I have screwed up things so bad, there's just no way God could restore it. Yes, He can. And yes, he will, if you'll let him. And so in just a moment, the ushers are going to come. They're going to pass to you a tray. And in the tray are two cups. And I want to encourage you to take both cups. One has the bread and one has the, the, the drink. And, and the Lord's Supper is a moment in which we come together to remember Jesus and what he's done for us. The bread represents his body that was broken for us. The cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And when Christians for 2,000 years, just as Jesus, when he began this moment with his, his followers, we don't remember Jesus the martyr, Jesus the great teacher. All those things we remember that he did. What we remember is he who knew no sin 
became sin for us. We remember that the, that the God from chapter 1 is a God who is for us. Who from every single chapter, as much as we screw it up, keeps working to restore us into relationship with himself. If you don't think God wants to be in a relationship with you, can I just offer to you that the Son of God voluntarily entered into this world, took on human flesh, made himself a servant, gave up his life. They didn't take his life. He gave up his life so that by his life and death, his burial, his resurrection, you could have life with God forever. Communion is a moment in which we are very real about what it took to have forgiveness. And it can be a kind of a, a, a somber moment where we are, when you're confessing things to God, it's, it's tough. But communion is also a moment of great celebration. We realize who is like our God? Who would do this? Who would give his own son to cover over my sin, my shame, my guilt? Who would take all my sin upon himself and trade it instead to give me his righteousness, his, let me share in his life, his love, his glory forever. Who would do this? No one would do this. And so as, you, as the bread and cup come, it's an invitation for you to remember how good our God is, how great his forgiveness is. It's a time for you to confess. And so let's let Psalm 51 guide us. And we'll close... We'll use this to meditate. Psalm 51 says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You keep going. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Friends, as the bread and the cup come to you, I, I want you to know, whether you are a member of Beach Point Church or not, you are invited to participate and enjoy. Uh, use this as a time of confession, of thankfulness. When you're ready, eat and drink. The band will play, and when you want to join in, when you're ready, join in. 
But today, if you are someone who does not yet know this grace and forgiveness firsthand, if you're just looking at it as an outsider would look at something kind of fascinating, but you've never encountered it, you've never experienced it, in a moment I'm going to pray. And I just want to invite you, if the desire of your heart is to know this God, to, to not just know his forgiveness, but to know his life, to begin this life with him now and forever, that I want to invite you to pray with me. And when the tray comes, I want to invite you as the first time ever, as, as a new believer, as a new follower, to take this bread and this cup. And so would you bow with me in prayer? And if it's your desire uh, to turn to him in faith today, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your life and your death for me. I put my faith in you and ask that you forgive me of my sin, that you fill me with your spirit, that I might begin today a life of following you, trusting you. And so with the smallest amount of faith I have, uh, I say to you, today I, I become your follower. Lead me. Show me what it means to know you and to walk with you. And may even this moment uh, be a special first moment between us together. And Lord, for all of us, let this be a time where our hearts are cleansed and our joy is returned and our faith is increased. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you're ready, eat and drink.